0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the novelist, critic and biographer Nicholas Shakespeare, whose new book is Ian Fleming, The Complete Man. Nicholas, welcome. Now, in the course of this book, which is about the man who obviously is primarily, if at all, known for having invented James Bond, you discover that the real man was far more complex than his creation and indeed perhaps deserves to be remembered for other things. Can you tell me how you came to this and and how you started writing a book on what might have seemed like quite a mind-out subject?
1: Well, as you said, I'm a novelist before I'm a biographer and I'd gone to Tasmania where I have a remote beach shack to begin work on another novel when I get a call from my agent in London saying, we've got rather an interesting proposition for you. The Fleming family are rather keen to commission a new biography, an authorised biography, the first since 1966, when John Pearson, who'd worked with Ian Fleming, wrote his very, very good first biography. Would you be interested? My first reaction, I have to say, was slight wariness, because I tilled in the vineyard of Peter Fleming before for a non-fiction book on Churchill coming to power, six minutes in May. And I'd been very impressed by Peter Fleming. But the image I got of his younger brother, Ian, out of sideways glances was very, very different. I I had an image of a a kind of wife-beating cad who spent his time playing golf and being a a kind of sardonic Old Etonian to all the people he comes in touch with. I I wasn't particularly enamoured of his character, as I saw it, or his of, which I'd read and enjoyed, but I wasn't a kind of Bond fan. And it struck me that only last week that possibly the moral of Ian Fleming's story is don't run off with the wife of the owner of the Daily Mail if you don't <laughs> wish forever after to be rendered into tabloid fat. Because essentially, the Daily Mail never reviewed Casino Royale when it came out and have held Fleming up to as, as a kind of caricature ever since. And I imbibed that caricature. So I asked for two months to do due diligence, as it were, to see whether I did want to spend three or four years in the company of a cad, which is what this might entail.
0: Can I ask briefly, what's your sense of what made them approach you? I mean, you're also a very distinguished person in all sorts of ways, but what do you think made them think Shakespeare's our man for Fleming?
1: I suspect they may have read a biography I wrote 20 years ago on Bruce Chatwin, who was somebody I had known and rather admired, but also in this book on Churchill coming to power in 1940, I had gone to the Fleming estate and looked at the archives in regards to Peter Fleming. And it was Peter Fleming's daughters who approached me who represent the Fleming estate. So they must, I suppose, have at least not been put off by how I approached the documents they gave me in relation to their father, Peter. What's happened in the course of my two months diligence? Two, two things. I discovered that Ian Fleming was a much kinder person than hitherto I'd suspected. I mean, every single woman who falls in love with him, and many, as Rebecca West said, there are enough to fill the Albert Hall, talked about his kindness. Now, that was not a quality that I'd associated with the creator of of 07. And for a biographer, that's a prized quality to try and extract, especially in defiance, in in the teeth of a different image, You know, even the woman who bought him Goldeneye, Maud Russell, with whom he had an affair during the war, six years after his death, I find an unpublished diary in which she's saying, I think continually of Ian, of his kindliness. That really lodged in my head and was almost a tilting factor. The second thing I discovered is that he was a much more important person than I'd realised. I think I'd absorbed the cartoon image that Max Hastings, my very esteemed former editor uh, and yours at the Daily Telegraph, had of Fleming and and can't be shifted from, the idea that he was never more responsible than for out trays, in trays and ashtrays and was a kind of chocolate sailor at Room 39 during the six years of the war and in a sense had kind of beefed up what he'd done there in, in the Bond books. Well, I found a very, very different truth Uh, it's difficult to get to the accurate truth because so many documents have been burnt, so many documents haven't yet come out into the public domain. But there are enough have come out in the last 30 years since Andrew Leissett's very good last biography to show that he really was a significant player. I mean, two other writers I knew quite well, John le Carré and Graham Greene, were absolutely on the fringe of British intelligence. Greene was in Sierra Leone, Le Carré was a kind of minor functionary in Hamburg and Bonn. He never had a successful mission, as far as I understand from his biography, Adam Sissman. And Fleming, by contrast, was in the inner sanctum of British intelligence. He and his brother Peter were two of only 30 people who were indoctrinated into Ultra, all the Bletchley Park code-breaking secrets in April 1940. Not even Churchill's personal intelligence officer Desmond Morton had access to this. So, so you have a man who's ultra-cleared. You then have him creating this extraordinary commander unit, 30 AU, which was an intelligence gathering unit, which he sent into North Africa and Sicily. And this was to grab German code books and German enigma machines and, and whisk them back to Bletchley. And it's thought that the activities of, of people like Fleming's commander shortened the war by something like 18 months. I mean, extraordinary achievements that these 450, in the end, total of, of Marines and Admiralty Boffins, were able to get. And, and Fleming also, these commanders also went into Germany after D-Day and captured scientific secrets, to future tornado plans, future f- secret fuel plans, future atomic plans... And I managed to interview one of the last survivors, a 94-year-old Bill Marshall, who'd been at all the present at all these, um, and he was like a lightning rod back into say, the
0: history. Was, I mean, this is a book um, which seems to have, you know, this scoop-filled sort of narrative of the secret war, quite sort of unexpectedly in some ways. And, and that guy, Bill Marshall, you mentioned, it's an amazing detail that you turned up Five days early to interview him by accident. Is that right? A week early to interview him by accident. It turned out five days later, he died.
1: Had he not turned up early, you'd never have got it. I went to Milton Keynes. I was so excited to see him. I booked to see him the following Wednesday. And I turn up the immediate Wednesday and I turn up to this cottage in Milton Keynes. I knock on the door. There's no lights on and the gruff voice answers. And I tell him who I am. He said, I was expecting you next week. And it's just as well I did see him that afternoon for five hours because he... Was present. He met Fleming in 1944 in northern France. He was present at every single important activity that Fleming's commandos did in France and in Germany. I mean, if I hadn't seen him, he was hospitalized five days later and he died a few weeks after that. If I hadn't seen him, I wouldn't have had this lucid, first-hand account of the compost of James Bond. I mean, Bill Marshall had a licence to kill and indeed killed four German captured snipers who were shooting at... American medical officers while they were administering the wounded, he was able to tell me firsthand all the kind of, you know, as I say, the compost out of which James Bond came. But the other thing that I found, um, Fleming, even though he was a commander, he had much greater influence during the war as powerful individuals did way beyond their ranks. And he was one of the only three or four people in the room when the Americans set up a foreign intelligence service, which they didn't have at that moment, pre-Pearl Harbor. We were desperate to get America into the war. And Fleming is one of those few people who create the special relationship, which was essentially an intelligence relationship. And he goes over to America in May 1941 and helps with William Donovan, Roosevelt's Nominees. This is Big Bill. <laughs> this is Big Bill, Colonel William Donovan, Wild Bill, who was the hero of a, of a, of a film that came out in 1940. And he and Fleming in, in, in some cottage in Georgetown <laughs> hammer out what eventually, what became the OSS that year, but then became the CIA in 1947, based on naval intelligence, based on all the operations Fleming was involved with, and all the dirty tricks he was doing against the Nazis. So the blueprint of the American Secret Service was based on something Fleming and Bill Donovan concocted in the heat of 1941, and obviously it grew and grew. And, and But most of the people later on, when Fleming became a, a kind of... JFK became a complete Fleming fan, um, not having met him, and read all the Bond books... And JFK had worked himself in naval intelligence at that period. So when you have a meeting of these two men at a dinner in Washington in 1960, just before JFK is about to become president, JFK turns to Fleming and says, what would Bond do against Castro, which was completely consuming everybody at that moment. Castro had come in in 1958 and was taking over Cuba. And the Americans were terrified. What do we do? And so Fleming answers at this amazing dinner party in Washington exactly what he would do, predicated on all the operations he'd set up in the Second World War for Naval Intelligence, and some, some of them with Bill Donovan. Um, that night, JFK is completely bewitched by Fleming's suggestions, and he rings the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, who's also another Fleming fan, and says, You've <laughs> got to get hold of him because he's got all these great ideas of how we deal with Castro. Well, um, JFK becomes president that November. And the following year, you have the Bear of Pigs operation, absolutely disastrous, but all predicated on what Fleming had suggested. I mean, the head of the task force who sent in, Bobby Kennedy, says, you all know James Bond. And after um, it's a disaster, Kennedy says, that wouldn't have happened to 007. So the whole of the Bear of Pigs is kind of structured as a kind of James Bond paradigm. But it's not any JFK who becomes obsessed with 007 and, uh, and this the idea of the individual who can kind of save the country, it's also the man who kills him. Lee Harvey Oswald is obsessed by Fleming's books, partly because JFK chose From Russia With Love as one of his favourite books. Lee Harvey Oswald defects to, to Russia, becomes a, a menial operator in Minsk, and comes back with his tail between his legs, sees that Kennedy loves James Bond books, buys them and finds that in From Russia with Love, there's this amazing assassin called Donovan, possibly based on William Donovan, the name, who um, becomes the prize assassin of Smirsh. And the night of the From Russia with Love being shown at the White House again, these are fantastic details that one finds as one puts the wall over the, the history of that period. The night The From Russia with Love is, is playing in the White House projection room. Kennedy can't be there. Many of the people who were at the dinner party were there. Kennedy's in Dallas. And we all know what happens then. And then when the FBI burst into Lee Harvey Oswald's flat, they find four James Bond books. But they also discover that all that summer, Lee Harvey Oswald has been carrying around as an alias. His alias is James. So I found that extraordinary, the kind of the effect that James Bond had on people like Kennedy. And also people like Eden, who, of course, fled to GoldenEye during the Suez Crisis and to recuperate. He flees uh, during the worst drama post-war for Britain in 1956 to the very place where James Bond had been conceived four years earlier. And there's a marvellous image that possibly the novelist in me was attracted by that Eden is paddling around in Ian Fleming's dinghy in GoldenEye on the beach, which has a leak and he's kind of sinking into the water, the same waters out of which James Bond emerges because suddenly everybody looks at this house, GoldenEye, Beaverbrook, who has a house in the north of Jamaica, suddenly serializes from Russia with love. And just as Fleming is about to kill off Bond, suddenly he is resuscitated and suddenly he sells copies. Suddenly there is an interest in Bond that allows him to go on feeding the machine. And I find it really fascinating that Bond touched so many people at this period, and especially the readers who were kind of persuaded that although we'd lost an empire, somehow Bond was a kind of one-man Suez Task (laughs) Force and restores Britain and the British Secret Service that had been contaminated by Philby and MacLean and Burgess. Somehow Bond redeems us all. And so the lower the sun sets on the British Empire the sharp of the glow on Bond who'd been born into it.
0: Yes. As you say, he sort of shapes and is deeply involved in all these crucial events of the 20th century and reflects decolonisation. But can we just sort of start by going back to the very beginning? Because the man out of whom they came, because Fleming, you know, he becomes very distinguished, he becomes very famous, he's massively important. And yet, to start with, until he's in his early to mid-20s, he's kind of rudderless, isn't he? What Can you sort of sketch the sort of... Family setup from which he emerged. He's got the sort of heroic father, nightmare mother, utterly outshone by his older brother. What? How did that affect the makeup of the man? How did how do you kind of read him as a young man? I
1: think he's born of great privilege, even though he's a grandfather or a, a grandson of poverty. His grandfather Robert Fleming was born in a two bedroom slum in Dundee, and I went back with Fleming's nephew James Fleming to find out the traces of Robert Fleming in Dundee. And he emerges from this two-bedroom house and works for a jute mill, and then discovers a way of of investing all the money from the, the Scottish jute merchants in the Scottish diaspora in America, which funds the railroads, the kind of modern internet equivalent, the internet boom was the railroads in those days. And suddenly Robert Fleming becomes one of the richest men in Europe. And he has the house in Grosvenor Square, which later becomes the, British, the, the, the American embassy, where JFK's father becomes ambassador. And Robert Fleming starts his bank, Robert Fleming Co., in 1908, which is the same year Churchill becomes the MP for Dundee. And so the kind of strange link between Churchill and the Flemings, Churchill would write the, by, the obituary of Val Fleming, Fleming's father, after he dies in 1917, in the Times, and the Fleming, Val and his brother worked for Churchill's regiment, the Oxfordshire Hussars in Oxfordshire. And all that, we realise, is because Churchill, as MP for Dundee during these vital periods, the the most famous Dundedonian would have been Robert Fleming, and he would have beaten a path to his door outside Henley to go shooting with him. And so Ian Fleming grows up suddenly as, as the son of wealth, and his father, Val, is MP for Henley, Boris Johnson's old seat, and dies a, a hero's death in 1917, and is in many ways a model for Bond. And, and and Fleming would join his father at the front only by, by under the guise of Bond, really. And the other thing that happens in his childhood is that his elder brother, Peter, has colitis almost immediately when Ian is born. And so the attention of his mother Eve is wrenched away from Ian, the moment of his of his birth, and really remains rested away for the next four years. And I think that explains this sense of, of melancholy in him. It, it entrenches early on a sense that his elder brother is the favorite, the pedestal child. The attention is, is totally taken away from him. And it sets up a dynamic which I think is is the motivating energy behind the Bond books in the end, a bit like Evelyn War and Alec War. You had the pedestal older child, Alec, age 17, writing The Loom of Youth and becoming a great succeeder scondile. And Evelyn War is is sent instead to Lansing rather than Sherbourne and has to kind of cower in in the blaze of his elder brother, which he rather resents. And after the war, it's Evelyn who is the greatest writer in the English language, and it's Alec who can't even get a publisher. More or less the same dynamic happens with Peter and Ian. Peter, in the nineteen thirties, escaping his mother, goes off to Brazil and Siberia and China, and writes these amazing travel books, which still read very fluently today. Brazilian adventure, news from Tartary. Overnight, he he, he becomes a kind of baron's figure, and you know, he's touted as the next viceroy of India. He's touted as the next edge of the times. He's touted after the war as the next head of the British intelligence service. And he's the first commando officer to land in occupied Europe after the Germans invade France. In April 1914, he lands in in Norway. So he's a kind of great hero for Ian. And Ian responds by being a kind of black sheep. He's got no alternative but to be a kind of womanizing playboy. And so all through the 30s, he is working for a merchant bank or a stockbroker, none of which he wants to do. He had a few years in Austria as a kind of Central European intellectual, which was a real revelation to me. That, you know, age 20, he's asked to translate All Quiet on the Western Front. That's not something you associate with the, the author of no, he, On he, he Secret a, Service. He cooks up a translation scheme with his Edith Sitwell as well. Yes, after the war, he meets Edith Sitwell and wants to um, translate Paracelsus. In, into English. Back in Geneva, when he's 22, 23, he's translating Carl Jung, he's translating Klaus Mann. This is a, a person, he, he didn't go to university after Eton, which he leaves in some disgrace, and then the army, which he gets gonorrhea and leaves Sandhurst very early. He refashions himself into a Central European intellectual who wants to go to the Foreign Office. And he works for the League of Nations under Sir Eric Drummond, whose codename, incidentally, during the First World War was Bond. And he falls in love with a Swiss woman who he wants to marry. And then his dreadful mother, Eve, puts a kibosh on that.
0: Well, that seems to be one of the... I mean, his love life, obviously, is a huge part of the book as well, because there was an awful lot of it. But she seems to be one of the kind of formative relationships. And you seem so, at least, quote, friends of his saying that this... Love affair with Monique. Her name was Monique Ponchot de Botton. Yeah, but the fact that his mother saw her off, you say, his contemporaries read his kind of rather love him and leave him kind of often cruel treatment of women afterwards as a sort of defensive reaction to that. Is that is that how you read it?
1: Well, I wasn't there. I wasn't holding the candle, but so I have to rely on his friends, and they seem you, 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 almost united in saying. That his ugly response to women after that was in reaction to his mother not letting him have bring to fruition his first adult love affair. And clearly they were very much in love. And what was terrible is that it's, it seems she broke it off, even though I think he's tried to put it about that he broke it off. She goes back to Switzerland and holds account for him for the rest of her life. She has a little shrine of his pictures. And in fact, the son. She marries the man who who invents Velcro. <laughs> and they have a son who I was in touch with fairly on when I decided to write this biography. And he sent me an extraordinarily generous gesture. He sent me the, the photographs that Fleming had sent Monique and which she had had as a kind of shrine near Geneva all her life. And I've had these on my desk while I was writing my biography as a kind of man. And, and the main picture was of Fleming looking at me this sardonic gaze veiled with cigarette smoke, bow tie, and he seemed very distant from me. I, I couldn't penetrate that inscrutability. Unlike Bruce Chatwin, who, who I'd known and admired and wrote a biography of, and, and at the end of my trajectory with Chatwin, I, I was slightly less enamored of him. But at the end of my trajectory with Fleming, something the opposite took place. I came to understand him and even like him and feel very great sympathy towards him, towards the end. And right at the end, I suddenly looked across the desk at this inscrutable face that had been, you know, we'd been eyeballing each other for four years, and suddenly I, I felt I saw into him a bit. Uh, and I felt I liked him, which was a nice trajectory because oh, a biography is quite a, a punishing lens. And, uh, and too often the biographer is repelled at the end by their subject. But in this case, I, Lewis, I wasn't. Right? Sorry? Roger Lewis syndrome. Oh, is that, yes? <laughs> no, Roger Lewis turning on Burgess being the kind of. <laughs> well, I think um, tell you who was the worst syndrome for that was the man who spent 20 years of his life writing the biographies of Graham Greene, Norman Sherry. I had a, an email from Piers Paul Reed yesterday, one of great contributors of The Spectator for many years and a wonderful novelist. He said on, on the day, Sherry finished the third volume on Grand Green. He rang Piers Paul Read and he said, "I hate him." <laughs> well, I didn't have that at the end of my Fleming Odyssey. Yeah,
0: now Fleming I, for a lot of the latter half of his life, you know, Fleming kind of colluded in the idea he'd been a chocolate sailor. He played down his achievements. It was you know he, his secrecy was a sort of necessary, constitutionally necessary cover. But i that quite a lot of those early sort of failures, he. Just kind of rebooted and and simply lied about him. And I think you, he claims, doesn't he, to have won some sporting prize or kind of a kind of shooting or running at Sandhurst. And you've gone in the records and he, he was kicked out for the clap long before any such thing could have happened. And he, you got, I think he said, ah, oh, you know, I got the highest ever score in the English exam for the Foreign Office. And that was
1: bollocks too. He failed the whole thing, didn't he? He's strangely, I mean, he never writes anything about his work in the war, which, as I we talked about, is, was really quite important. Instead, he has these strange kind of boasts of things that actually weren't at all important and turned out to be wrong. Like, he wins the Victor-Ludorum three times in succession. I think it's twice in succession, and no one's ever done this before. Well, my son was in the same house at school as Fleming and himself won the Victor-Ludorum, and so I, I did a double check on people who'd won the Victor-Ludorum more than once, and it turns out that, you know, eight people have won the Victor-Ludorum twice... <laughs> It arose since Fleming. And so I took with a... Well, frankly, I began writing this biography by taking a pinch of salt, everything that I'd been told, because so much of what you're told about Fleming turns out when you rub the wire wool over it to be completely wrong. So I I kind of began again at the beginning. An image... I, I couldn't work out how to begin the book until I checked out the people who'd been at his funeral. Now, he dies in August 1964 just on the day he's about to tell his son the facts of life, his 12-year-old son Caspar. And three days later, his funeral takes place at the aptly named Church of St. James's outside Fleming's Country House at Sevenhampton near Swindon. And there are only 14 people present at this funeral service. And this I have to remind you, you know, this is the year when he's selling something like 40 million copies around the world, that um, Goldfinger's coming out from Russia with Love's come out. I mean, he's probably the most famous author on earth. Yet yeah, at his funeral, only 14 people have turned up. So I managed to track down two of them. And they both tell me the same thing, that he was in the most astonishing funeral. And their eyes came out like organ stops. And I said, well, why? They said, well, where we were, waiting to begin the, the ceremony, the vicar suddenly at two o'clock says, right, let's begin. We all look around, Anne hasn't turned up. Anne Fleming, Fleming's widow. But the vicar has mistaken the woman in the front row in black for the widow. In fact, this is Fleming's sister in law. So they all stand up, slightly worried that the service is beginning without Anne Fleming. And it goes on. And then, suddenly, five minutes later, there's a movement at the back of the church. And there is Anne Fleming with the coffin, which she is accompanied from Sevenhampton along the lake to the church with the pallbearers. And both of these women who were in the service said, And it was terrible the service had to begin again. And so I had this image of a funeral service of one of the most famous people beginning again. And I thought, I've got to do that with the book. We all think we know him, but actually we don't know him. And I'm going to ask you to turn the soil of his personal life right from the beginning. And that's what I did. And I think I then found all sorts of things that I hadn't suspected and discovered that were very exciting and actually added to my idea that he was a kinder and more important man that I'd had when, when I was set off. Yeah. The sort of image of him
0: as slightly cruel, slightly sadistic, which kind of plays back from James Bond, the extent to which that's to be qualified, seemed to me there's a really extraordinary detail that I'd, maybe I'd like to talk about. Maybe I expect it struck you as well. Another of his great loves, you know, is before his affair with Anne and his marriage, is this woman, Muriel, and Muriel's death in the war, his reaction to that, or lack of it, is absolutely extraordinary. I think it's a, a tobacconist, I think, is the anecdote you tell. Can you set that in context a bit and say what you think it says about
1: him? Well, this is a, a very good example of how you have to go a bit further with what we've already got. In the mid-1930s, he meets in Kitzbühel in Austria, which became his kind of second home, a young Englishwoman called Muriel Wright, who came from an upper-class family in Yorkshire. And they start having an affair. She adores him. He clearly loves her, but doesn't want to settle down just yet with anybody. But he gets her job as a dispatch rider at the Admiralty during the Second World War. And all the men in his office completely fall in love with her and can't understand why he doesn't become the husband of Muriel. And I tracked down the, Muriel's cousins, and one by one they built a slightly different picture that he had been coming up to Yeldersley, which is the house in Yorkshire, to ask the father's hand for Muriel's marriage. He decided he was going to get married now. And what happens then is that Muriel is killed in a bombing raid in London. She's going out to try and protect her dog, and she's killed. And Fleming is completely shattered in some accounts, and in other accounts, completely, as you mentioned, insouciant. Um, There's this story that the following day, he goes to collect his modern cigarettes from the tobacconist. And it was usually Muriel's job to do this. But since she was dead, she couldn't collect them. So he went to collect them. And the woman said, Oh, um, we've still got them for you. Why didn't she come? He said, Oh, she was killed last night. And then he hops back into his car. Now, that's taken as a a sign of his complete callousness, his coldness, his cruelty, whatever you like. I mean, that that feeds into the Daily Mail caricature. But what happened with Muriel, uh, with, with Maud Russell, records his reactions those days. And she says he comes round to her and his fingers are trembling. He's completely shattered. He can't talk about it. And then he leaves her. He says he's going to Scotland. Well, I discover that, in fact, he's gone to her funeral in, up in Yeldersley. And I track down a letter that he then writes to her parents. And that letter is fabulous because it's never been seen before. And it completely unequivocally shows you how devastated he was and how heartbroken he was. And uh, that was rather comforting to think he wasn't this cold, cruel, calculating person. He was capable of being scratched, but he wasn't very good at at revealing that.
0: And then, do you think that in some sense, you know, you talk about the Bond books as being not quite a bait and switch, but an attempt to put certain of the experiences he had, you know, to kind of get them out there while he wasn't able to talk about them, if you like, in nonfiction, Was it also a way of putting aspects of himself that he wanted to kind of preserve? I mean, you know, the, the softer side of him isn't in Bond, is it? I mean, is it a sort of like, this is this is an idealized version of myself, or this is a self-punishing version of myself? What, what was he doing, do you think, psychologically with those books?
1: Well, I think we have to put it in context when he starts writing them, which is in February 1952, when He's gone to Jamaica with his pregnant girlfriend who he's going to get married to because they've had a child previously who died when she was married to Lord Rothermere, who was, incidentally, going to inherit the Daily Mail because Rothermere (laughs) thought it was his child and he didn't think his other children were his. He was going to make Ian Fleming's child, (laughs) the heir of the Daily Mail, which is an astonishing um, possibility. But so, and Rothermere gets pregnant again and so she leaves... Rothermere and goes to Jamaica with Ian. And he has to marry her, the upright side of himself, because it would be known that this was his child. I don't think he wanted to get married. I think their love affair was fabulous when it was illicit and not so great when uh, wedlock is about to become padlock. So I think in this moment, as his child is about to be born, he creates his own Cold War child on paper, which is to recreate his bachelor life, but to set it in the Cold War. So he does all the operations that he put forward to his boss, Admiral Godfrey, against the Nazis, and many of which he wasn't able to go on himself, although he wanted to, because he was such a security risk. But often he put other people in those um, operations. So he creates a kind of version of his bachelor self in the Cold War. And a lot of the love affair, I, I'm very amused by people predicting that, oh, God, he was so good about predicting the swinging 60s all the sex revolution. Well, that's absolute shite, because he was just basically transferring the love affairs he'd had in the Blitz when everyone was leaping in bed with each other and puts them in a Cold War <laughs> austere setting. And it all seems frightfully modern, but it's, it's just a rehash. Similarly, with his operations against the Russian enemy now, rather than the Nazi enemy, one other thing is that in 1945, as the war's coming to end, he is one of those who is contributing to the bland report on the future of British intelligence. Not even Richard Dearlove, the ex-head of MI6, knew that Fleming had been a contributor, and Peter Fleming as well. And Fleming is chairing JIC meetings, and he's chairing Joint Intelligence Bureau meetings. I mean, these are fantastically important positions. This no chocolate sailor. I mean, I told Max Hastings, you know, you can't be a chocolate sailor and chair a Joint Intelligence Bureau meeting on the future of British intelligence. <laughs> in um, August 1945, he is offered a, a very important job in this future intelligence service. And he toys with taking it, and then he decides not to, to go and work for Lord Kemsley, setting up the foreign coverage of the Sunday Times and all those papers with 88 correspondents in a sense mimicking naval intelligence many of these. Yes he more or less suggests he's still a spook at this stage. He's still a spook I think he's contributing sitrep reports from these, from these correspondents to British intelligence and he's clearly keeping in touch with British intelligence and as you would do if you'd be possibly going to be running British intelligence and so I think what Bond is Bond is his attempt to explore what would have happened to Fleming if he continued on in the intelligence service during the Cold War as an operative. I mean, Bond doesn't have any access to secrets like Fleming did. But I think that was his, he, he he's retrieving his bachelor self parallel to his impending marriage and domesticity, the prime in the hall. He, he's giving Bond a gun to go out into the world uh, and having duty-free sex and into into climate in post-war Britain, you know they're all f- spam munchers in, in in a terrible, you know rationing is lasting till 1952. So I think he's telling the world what he's up to during these two months of the year when he's in Jamaica enjoying the sun and the <laughs> the, 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 the tropical fruit. Sort and of the, up well, in a as well.
0: <laughs> this marriage to Anne, do you think? I mean, it struck me when you're describing Anne's character. She's sounds sort of dangerously close to Fleming's mother in terms of, you know, being a drama queen, being a nightmare, being sort of addicted to luxury. I mean, do you think he did essentially fall into that cliche trap of marrying his mother?
1: I think he did. Uh, I mean, Anne Fleming's a very difficult person to humanise. She's like a coral brought up from the reef. She drains of colour when you bring her to the surface, and clearly she she prospered when she was with her own people in her own setting. And it's very difficult to kind of capture that because the person who who comes above surface seems to be very cruel and catty and not very sympathetic and very much like his mother. I don't think she was as snobbish as his mother, but she was as dominating and as controlling as his mother. And what's interesting is you never have a comment by his mother once he produces Anne Fleming. It's as if the two most powerful women in his life have a standoff and they don't talk about each other. Because I think I'd be really interested to know what Eve Fleming felt about Anne as a prospective daughter-in-law. And what's really sad for Fleming is that he lives his life entirely under the shadow of his dominating mother who, you know, she would control his holidays, his women, his employment. All his professions are chosen by her but he only escapes her for two weeks at the end of his life. She dies right until the end and she controls the purse strings too. By the complicated will, she can't pass on or refuses to pass on the money that she's inherited from her dead husband. And so her four sons are in a constant state of kind of hands outstretched for the next bauble. And that's a very humiliating position to be in. And I think Fleming was psychologically in that position right to the end of his life, even though suddenly at the end of his life, he seems to be making a lot of money. It's not quite as much as people think because the Labour government is taking 91% of it. But it's still, he's, he, he's suddenly successful in a way that he hasn't been. And he only is able to enjoy this for two weeks after his mother's death.
0: You say that he was obviously very important in intelligence during the war, but you know, just much of his chagrin, he can't hair off like his brother and be involved in actual operations. But he did here and there find himself if not in the thick of it, on the edges of it. I mean, there's an extraordinary story of him sort of basically hopping across the Channel in order to retrieve a whole bunch of Belgian gold.
1: Well, this is one of the exciting things about always... I mean, if one was to do a biography of Shakespeare, you would find new stuff. I mean, that's what keeps us going because there's always new stuff out there. So this begins with me standing on a cold day on the River Charles in, in Boston, watching my son row. And I'm introduced to the oldest member of the boat club, who's a 96-year-old Belgian called Francis de Barnefi, who'd been a doctor who'd treated um, Sylvia Plath. And, but more than that, he'd been a rower. He'd been the first rower at Henley after the war in 1947. And before that, when the Germans invade Belgium, he'd bicycled out to get down to Bordeaux as a 16-year-old. And he meets on the road his best friend's father, who is the head of the Belgian National Bank. And there are 14 lorries there in Poitiers. And the head of the National Bank says, do you want to join us on the way to Bordeaux? I'll look after you. So they get to Bordeaux. The Belgian government is meeting upstairs in a room with the, the, the finance minister, who says to Francis, when the British ambassador comes, could you just tell me? Anyway, this gentleman, Campbell, arrives from Paris fleeing. Francois tells them that he's arrived, and then there's an amazing conversation he overhears, at the end of which the ambassador says, thank you so much, and what can I do for you? And uh, the finance minister says, well, could you give my nephew here uh, a passage to England? So Francois gets a ticket out of Bordeaux and it's Ian Fleming who takes him to the boat and gets him kind of away. But what I then discover is that they were discussing how to get rid of the Belgian gold reserves, which were in these 14 lorries. And it's the British ambassador who was going to arrange for some boats to to take them out of Bordeaux. And it's Fleming, it seems, who was responsible for getting the gold reserves out to West Africa. And so this is, to me, this was extraordinary. Why would you send Fleming to France if he's ultra-cleared? unless this is for a very, very important reason. And this seems to be possibly one of the reasons. And it also explains why he became fascinated by gold. And so as a, for a biographer, this was just dynamite. But it only happened because of a chance conversation on the banks of, of the Charles. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's extraordinary. Also, he's... There is a formative during his first period as a journalist when he's at Reuters before the war. He goes to Russia, witnesses one of Stalin's show trials. And that seems to there's a whole lot of fuel for what came later in there as well, isn't there?
1: Well, it shows he works for Reuters, which he regards as the happiest period of his life. And he said that if he was reincarnated today, he'd want to be a television journalist with a TV crew. I think he loved journalism. He was a very, very good journalist. And that accounts for the success of the Bond books. In 1933, he's going to look at this show trial, which involves six Metropolitan Vickers engineers. And it's interesting that Bond's father, in I can't remember which book it is, works for Metropolitan Vickers before he enters the Secret Service himself. So Fleming is there in the court watching this show trial with one of the most terrible judges, a man who I think had shared a a cell with Stalin in, in the First World War. And he sees at first hand the, the dreadful workings of the Soviet state, which we're now seeing yet again in full view today. And that, I think that plants in him the idea that the Soviets are the enemy, that communism is the enemy. And certainly in the Second World War, right at the end, when he makes a lightning dash to Tambach Castle near Munich to rescue the the German naval archives, he's hearing in the woods a kilometre away, the German tanks far up. And I think this sound reverberates throughout his fiction after the war. It's definitely the Russians who are the enemy. And I think in every single Bond book, except for one, it's always a Russian villain or a Russian sponsored villain that he's up against. But I think that 1933 visit to Moscow when he's the young, he's only 24, and all the other journalists are veterans like Durante and Chalderton and A.C. Cummings. He is the one who gets the story out first. Not without some Max Hastings-style jiggery-pokery. Very much Max (laughs) Hastings-style jiggery-pokery. And probably that's why Max slightly resents him. (laughs) Because actually, Fleming, age 24, was doing what Max later did in Port Stanley. So, again, just to kind of put you in the situation, the foreign minister is up late in Whitehall waiting for Fleming's Reuters dispatch. And the Times is waiting to to publish it. And the dispatch is then sent to Ramsay MacDonald on the high seas, who is on his way to America. And then the following day, there's a meeting at Windsor with the King present, all based on Fleming's dispatch from Moscow in 1933, so that he he had a taste for what journalism could do and the audience he might get, but he would have to wait another 30 years, no, 20 years before he'd get it with Casino Royale and and his Bond books. Well, those Bond books, I mean, it was a sort of double
0: question. You, as a novelist and critic, how good... Do you think they are? And also, how good did Fleming think they were? Did he did he take pride in them or did the literary gent in him resile at having become famous for being a thriller
1: writer? There's an amazing image when From Russia with Love is released in Leicester Square and the audience is sneaking twice round it. He goes to the premiere and he comes back to his small house, Victoria Square, and he serves six or seven people caviar that he's won from a casino in the 2K the day before. And all the people there are the people who had sneered at him and he had admired throughout his life, you know, Cyril Connolly or Iris Murdoch or his brother Peter or Evelyn Waugh especially, who, who ends up rather ironically dying in, in Fleming's invalid chair. And Graham Greene wasn't there, but Fleming was very jealous of these other writers who he wanted to be, but he knew he could never be. But that night, he's like more famous than any of them. And he just goes up, he takes the alpine descent uh, descent to bed, and he just thinks it's all ashes. So I think he had a very healthy understanding of his talent, which he wished possibly he could have written one good book he talked about. But I don't think he had the patience. He could only really write at top speed these two-month bites of energy um, he didn't have it in him to do what most of the novelists he admired do, which is to kind of rewrite and go over it again and patiently go over it again. He just That wasn't his energy. In a sense, he was a bit bipolar. His son Casper was bipolar. And I often wondered if Fleming himself suffered from that. It's a hereditable disability. And I, I think Fleming himself was possibly bipolar, which accounted for all the contradictions in his character. But a bit like Bruce Chapman, almost anything you say of him, the opposite is immediately true. And personally, I feel he was a kind of Somerset Maugham figure. I think very, very good second row writer. And he knew that. He he was um he had I don't think he had any any false image of himself. He wished he could have been better. He probably knew he had it in him to be better if he approached his work in a different way, but he, there was so much else he wanted to do with his life. And I wonder if these books we'd still be talking about if they hadn't been filmed so successfully by Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli, because in a sense, the films have kept the novels and James Bond alive. And whatever the formula is, and I talked to the producers, um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael uh, G. Wilson, about what is it that you wouldn't tamper with? What's inviolable in in this formula? And it seemed to me very little was unalterable. But what they said was that well, he has to be an Englishman. He has to be a man, and he has to be an Englishman or you know, Briton. He has to be fighting for queen, king, commonwealth, country, and he has to be incorruptible. Those seem to be the only rules, but within that, he can be adapted, manipulated to do whatever you like. I thought that was quite interesting, and I think you tamper with him at your peril. If you try and unpick bits of him that you don't like, you might end up unpicking the royal jelly, which is what we all like about him, and we can't quite work out what it is we like about him. That we have all sorts of theories, but I suspect there's a kind of magic about him that is kind of irreducible. And we'll, if the films can keep going, we'll we'll be constantly watching him. But I don't. I'm not sure we would be reading him if they hadn't been the films. As you say I think that that actually the film portrayals did
0: start to affect the way he wrote the novels as well. I mean, I know Irvin Welsh, for instance, always says, you know. His vision of his hard man, Begbie, was originally this kind of bull-necked, bald-headed character. It was only when Robert Carlyle played him as a funny, aggressive little guy. You know, that changed it in Irvin's head for
1: subsequent books. Did Connery have the same effect on...? Well, I mean, Le Carre had the same thing with um, with watching Ali Guinness. I mean, he, he, he adapted Smiley, having seen Guinness play him. And very much the same thing happened with Fleming. Bond only becomes Scottish after we see... Him in Doctor No, and I think he becomes Scottish's first time in on a secret service. Up until then, Fleming is trying to not give Bond any personal details and uh, trying to keep him as a kind of tabula rasa that we can all imagine ourselves in his shoes, in his bed, in his car, with the, the aplomb of the elite. But bit by bit, he has to feed the monster with more details from himself. But I think definitely the Sean Connery. A portrayal he was very pleased with, and even though he hadn't initially thought that Connery would do a good job, I think he he felt that he was a kind of uncouth Scotsman who wasn't going to be able to play the part of a British gentleman. But as soon as he saw The Rushes of Doctor No, he changed his mind. And I think he only saw the, the first two films. He may have seen The Rushes of Goldfringer, I don't know. So he never lived to see the other actors portray him. But I think very much he approved of Connery. And as you say, slightly adapted the Bond figure in the last few novels.
0: Well, just to end on, the point you 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 made at the beginning of our conversation was that actually Ian Fleming was much more important than the writer of some successful thrillers. Do you think when all the archives are opened in 50 or 75 or 100 years from now, historians will... The the top line of Ian Fleming's Wikipedia entry will be, you know, the man who... Helped to end the Second World War, create the special relationship with America. Do you you think he's going to, that James Bond will be nudged into number two by the long historical
1: view? I don't think he'll be nudged into number two because it's almost impossible to underemphasize, whatever you think of Fleming or Bond, how much Bond is now a worldwide figure in a way that probably only the Queen was. And For an English or British personality, I mean, every single day in the papers, there is a reference to James Bond. I remember seeing his last publisher, Flaming's last publisher, Tom Mashler, who was complaining that, you know, you can't open a paper without seeing a reference to him. And so I did a little experiment in the next two weeks before Mashler died. And literally, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or Diana Rigg or Putin, you know, as a Bond villain... it's a reference point unlike any other character. So I can't see however important Fleming is revealed to have been in the Second World War. And I think he was important. I'm not saying he was the most important, but I think he's a lot more important than we've allowed him to be. However important he was, he's not going to be nearly as important as the effect of his character, who has somehow entrenched himself in the imagination's all around the world. I mean, Fleming's niece, Jilly, told me that, you know, he's even in Tibet more important than God, where they haven't heard of God, but they've (laughs) heard of James Bond. Uh, James Bond, more important than God.
0: Nicholas Shakespeare, thanks very much. Ian Fleming, The Complete Man, is out now.